Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being so good to us and giving us nothing less than yourself. Lord, we praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the gift of your Son, for making us those who know you. And Lord, we pray that you would now work in our hearts and enable us to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Lord, make it so for us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And help us to live by faith like these that we will read about. Lord, help us to learn from their example to live as they lived, that we might die as they died, that we might join with them around your throne and one day in inhabiting the new Jerusalem. Lord, we pray that you would conquer the remaining strongholds in our hearts, in our affections, in our thinking, and make us those who are yours completely. We ask in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 11, and we will be looking at Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 31. The chapter opens with the words, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. And that is exactly what enabled this, this lady named Isabel to respond to the murder of her husband the way that she did. Uh, this, this man's name was John Brown of Priest Hill, and he was a Scottish covenanter. And when the forces of the Church of England came through his town, this little town in Scotland named Priest Hill, to enforce the decree that these people either be brought into conformity or executed. They, they found him. They brought out the evidence against him that he was actively promoting the outrage of religious liberty, that people ought to be able to worship in accordance with their understanding of the Bible, in accordance with their own conscience, and they sentenced him to death. And the soldier who was there to enforce this gave him leave to pray and to say goodbye to his wife. And when he went to his wife, I want to read you his words. He said to her, they knew this was coming. They knew they were going to come for them. And he said to her, now Isabel, the day has come that I told you would come when I spoke to you first of marrying me. He knew they were going to come for him. And he told his wife, when he first asked her to marry him, they're probably going to hunt me down and kill me. And because they believed, because they believed that the Bible is true, because they believed that their understanding of Scripture was correct, because they believed they were ready to defy the government and go forward with the practice of their religion and with their own marriage. She replied, Indeed, John, I can willingly part with you she said, that is, oh, he said, that is all I desire. He said, I have no more to do but to die. 
I have been in the happy life, ready to meet with death for many years. And then he kissed her, and the soldier uh, who was in charge ordered the firing squad to shoot him dead. And they were appalled at this command. They had seen this man pray, and they wouldn't obey the order. So the man in charge whipped out his pistol and shot him through the head. And then he turned to this young lady, Isabel, and he said to her, what do you think of your fine husband now? And she bravely answered, I ever thought much good of him, and more than ever now. That comes from faith. That comes from believing that though they killed him, he will be raised from the dead and rewarded. It comes from believing that because of what Christ did on the cross and because Christ was raised from the dead, death is not the end. That kind of response to death comes from faith. And what we're going to see, what we're going to continue to see here in Hebrews 11 verses 23 through 31 is the same kind of faith in action. Belief in God, belief in God's word, and belief that because of the truth of Scripture and because of the truth of what the Scriptures say, those who cry for blood can be defied. So there are seven by faith statements here in Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 31, and they each make their own contribution. And one way to do this would be to walk through all seven, so I could have like seven points here. Uh, but you won't be surprised that I think that the first and the last match, and the second and the second to last match, and uh, the third and the fifth match with the fourth in the middle. Uh, so I think that there's a, a, a mirrored structure here. And I think as we go through, you'll, you'll be able to see the way that the author of Hebrews has arranged these things to correspond to one another. So let's... What we're going to see, let me preview these four sections for you. We're going to see him address allegiance. He's going to address satisfaction. He's going to address the, the, the story that people believe. And he'll address ultimate salvation. Um, and, and those are the four. Allegiance, satisfaction, story, and salvation. So let's look first at what he says about allegiance from the first verse, verse 23, and the last verse of this section, verse 31. And what we're going to see here is going to force on us this question. With whom is your allegiance? Is your allegiance to the world or is your allegiance to God? Look at verse 23. The author writes, you know, he's been doing this by faith thing and he, he had these figures at the beginning in verses 11, 1 through 7 that are like Abel and the, the really early characters, Abel and Noah and Enoch and so forth. And then he moved to Abraham and he really stayed with Abraham in verses 8 through 22. Only in the last several verses there does he get to Isaac in verse 20 and then Jacob in, in verse 22. And Joseph, sorry, Jacob in verse uh, 21 and, and Joseph in verse 22. Now he comes to Moses, verse 23. But he's really talking about Moses' parents. Hebrews eleven twenty three. 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And we read about the situation in Exodus chapter 2. And if we had read Exodus 
chapter 1, we would have seen there that the king of Egypt had, had seen that the people of Israel were being fruitful and multiplying. And, and so he counseled his people to, to act shrewdly and, and to keep them from continuing to multiply. And if war broke out, rise up against Egypt and then go up from the land. And so what he first decreed was that the parents, or the midwives, sorry, the midwives were to murder the male children. And they refused to do so. So then he decreed that all the male children were to be thrown into the Nile River and killed. Now, I think what he's getting at here can be applied to us like this. If a wicked and tyrannical government calls for blood, they can be defied. Because you must obey God rather than men. And it is clear, isn't it, that a parent's responsibility is, is for the life of the innocent child. A parent is obligated to obey God's mandate that the child live. It's obvious to, to everyone's conscience. Obey God rather than man. And if man decrees murder the child, you obey God rather than men. That in part is what I think Moses' parents is do, are doing. But also, I think when the text says that they saw that the child was beautiful, um, I think they're seeing the Lord is going to raise up this child. Somehow the Lord, had, I think, had revealed to Moses' parents that this child was going to be used significantly in God's program for the good of God's people. And if you've been in our, our Genesis Kenwood Institute class, you've seen, you've heard how when we talked about the blessing in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So parenthood, uh, fertility, man and wife coming together to, to have offspring seed, this is foundational to God's purposes from creation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he says. And then Genesis 3.15, when God makes the promise, the initial promise of redemption, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So parents having babies is central to creation. It's also central to the story of redemption. It's, it's central to what we are as human beings. And, and I think Moses' parents understand this at some level, and they know we've got to protect the life of this child, and we must obey God rather than man. So it's like this, this verse about Moses' parents not being afraid of the king's edict, is asking us, whose side are you on? Are you with God or are you with Pharaoh? That's the question. Are you with God or are you with Pharaoh? If you're with Pharaoh, your response to the king's edict is, got to murder the child, got to throw it in the river. Or if you're a midwife, got to put it to death the moment I know it's a male. But if you side with God, you're ready to defy Pharaoh. And, and you believe God's judgment will be worse for me than anything that Pharaoh could do for me. Do to me, I should say. So anything that Pharaoh could do to punish these people, it pales in comparison to what they face if they side with Pharaoh against God. Now I think we've got a similar statement in verse 31. Look at verse 31. By faith Rahab, the prostitute... An inhabitant of Jericho, you remember, the lady in the wall to whom the spies came. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, 
did not perish with those who were disobedient. So they're kind of summarizing her story here. We didn't, we didn't read earlier in the service about Rahab. We didn't have time. But you'll remember how the spies come to her and she takes them off, up on the roof and she hides them on the roof because she knows who they are. She has said to them, it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's almost like she quotes the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15 to these spies. She's like, we heard what your God did to the Egyptians. And then in Exodus 15, Moses is prophesying that the inhabitants of Canaan, their hearts are going to melt when they hear the news of what God has done to Pharaoh in Egypt by defeating Egypt through the plagues and then overwhelming the army of, of Egypt in the Red Sea. And Rahab says to the spies, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. It, she's almost directly quoting the Song of the Sea. She probably heard it and she probably locked onto it and believed the God of Israel so that then these spies come and she's like, I know who you are and I know who your God is and I fear him more than I fear the king of Jericho. So she takes these guys up on her roof. She, she hides them under the stalks. And then here comes the emissaries of the king. And they're like, where are the spies from Israel? To which she says, they went that way. Hurry, you can go find them. Be fast. But they're not that way. They're up on her roof. She defies them. And then they essentially tell her, you're going to have your own little Passover here. So they escape from her house through a window, and, and it's almost like a reenactment of the lamb's blood on the doorpost and the lentil. They, they say, put this scarlet cord on this window where we exit your house, and then essentially they say, when we come in and destroy the land, act like the destroyer did for the firstborn of Egypt in all of Jericho, we're going to pass over your house. But in the same way that the Israelites had to be in the house, they say to her, you get all your family and anybody you want saved alive in the house. Anybody that goes outside the house, their blood's on their own head. And she does it. She obeys. And as the text says here, she's, she's not destroyed with those. She didn't perish with those who were disobedient. What are they disobedient to? Not the king of Jericho. They obeyed the king of Jericho. They're disobedient to the Lord. So it's really the same issue, isn't it? To whom do you display allegiance? To the world, the king of Jericho, or the king of Egypt, or to God? Whose side are you on? Both these, this first verse, verse 23 with Moses, and the last verse with Rahab the prostitute, verse 31, that's the question being, being asked. Whose side are you on? So probably I don't need to say this, but I'm going to make it explicit Make sure that your allegiance is with the one who can cast both soul and body into hell. Jesus says to his followers, do not fear what they can do to your body. Fear the one who can cast soul and body into hell. You, you swear fealty to God and you be prepared to defy the wicked governments of the earth, the wicked rulers of the earth, who will, in various ways, cry for blood and, and pursue their wickedness in direct defiance of the living God. That's what both Pharaoh and the king of Jericho are doing. Next, uh, and then, each, each one of these little units is headed by faith. So you see there in verse 24, by faith. And then you don't see it again in verse, until verse 27. 
So we're going to get verses 20, 24 through 26. And I think this is also going to stand across from verse 30. Okay, so let's look together here. And what we're going to see here is, I think, the question that's forced upon us is, where do you seek satisfaction? Are you going to seek your satisfaction from the world or from God? Okay, so look with me at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know where I think the author is getting this? I, I, I'm not sure if it was exactly clear in the English translation, but I believe there's a footnote on, on the word in English. Um, in, in, in Exodus chapter 2, the passage that we read, um, when it says in, in verse uh, 11... He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And in the lower margin, the footnote reads, Hebrew brothers. He saw an Egyptian beating one of his brothers. And, and so what the, what the book of Exodus is telling us is, Moses is not identifying as the daughter of Pharaoh whose brothers are the Egyptians. Moses is identifying as an Israelite. The Israelites are his brothers. And I think that's where the author is getting this idea that he refused to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter because his people are God's people. That's how Moses, I think, is thinking about this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, think about that calculation. If, if you're Moses, would you make this calculation? I'm not going to identify with all the people with power and wealth. I'm not going to identify in a way that clearly puts me in the best possible standing in the whole of this society. I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. No, I'm going to identify with probably those smelly slaves who are being afflicted and persecuted. Why would he make that calculation? He would make that calculation for the same reason that his parents made the calculation they made. Because he believes God. And he believes whatever it is that these Egyptians have. And they had phenomenal wealth. And they had technology. And they had learning. And they had standing. They had power. Whatever it is that they have, it's like chaff. That the wind drives away. And meanwhile, these Lowly slaves who in the world's eyes are nothing and have nothing. They have the promises of God. They have the blessing of Abraham. They have the favor of the living God on them. And that's why he says, I want to be with them. I want to be with God's people. I love this statement in Psalm 119 where the psalmist, he says, I am a companion of those who keep your testimonies. This is Psalm 119, verse 63. He says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. That's the language. I am a companion of all who fear you. You know, um, you ought to take note of those, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not. But what they like to criticize is other Christians. And, and the people who get their most opprobrium are the people of the church. 
And when they want to talk bad about somebody, they're talking bad about Christians. You ought to take note of those people. And you ought to ask yourself, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you a companion? I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. However they look in the eyes of the world. That's who we want to identify with. However they are regarded by worldly standards, we want to identify with God's people. That's what Moses is doing. Look at what the text goes on to say about him in verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now this is where the concept of satisfaction comes in. Because Moses' calculation is, I know this is going to cost me. This is going to cost me all kinds of immediate gratification. All kinds of temporary pleasure. He probably had everything you can imagine at his disposal in the house of Pharaoh's daughter. As the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he essentially said to all of the best that ancient Egypt could offer, no thanks. I'd rather have the mistreatment doled out to these people of God than all the pleasures of Egypt. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, what he's doing is, is he's doing a cost-benefit analysis. And he's saying, which is more valuable? Is it more valuable to have all the treasures of Egypt, which he had, or is it more valuable to be with Jesus, even if it means reproach in the short term? And, and he's recognizing it's obviously more valuable to have the blessing of Abraham. It's obviously more valuable to have the favor of the living God. It's obviously more valuable to have eternal life in a resurrection body in the new heavens and new earth than to have a temporary life and a pyramid in which is my mummy if I die in Pharaoh's good gracious. That, that's the calculation that he's making. And, and the way that we need this to operate on us is we need the testimony of Moses to convince us that the allurements of the doomed world are not worth that, what they will cost us. If Moses identifies with Egypt, he gets all the allurements of the doomed world, and then he goes to hell. That's what he gets. He gets temporary pleasure and long-term pain. And, and look at what the last statement there of verse 26 says. Now, I'm going to read the whole verse. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. He's looking to the payoff. That's why he made the choice that he did. So the question this forces upon us is, which pleasures do you pursue? Which pleasures do you pursue? And, and this is where we really need to pray because, because we are so foolish, we, we are so ignorant. Hebrews 5 speaks of the way that the, the priests of the Old Covenant, because of their own ignorance and waywardness and the fact that they were beset with weakness, they could, they could minister to those in the same condition. And that's where we are. We're ignorant. We don't, we don't think about the long-term payoff or even 
the payoff beyond the immediate gratification. We're ignorant. And we're wayward. We're, because of sin, we're directed in all the wrong ways. And we instinctually respond to all the wrong stimulations. And, and we're beset with weakness. We want to overcome, and we just can't. Ignorant, wayward, beset with weakness. We are, we are the kind of people that would be on the Titanic, sitting in a fabulous dining room, and hear the ship shudder, and be told, we're going down. And we would look at the plate of all the delicacies and think to ourselves, I'm going to finish this first. I'm going to enjoy this meal, and then I'll see to my escape. That's how stupid we are. We can't do this on our own. We can't overcome, but Christ has overcome. Christ has overcome, and if you're somebody who has believed the gospel, the, 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 the life to come has broken into your present reality. If you've been born again, if you've been made alive in Christ, because of him, because of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome. You are not bound to sin. You can make the calculation that Moses makes, but you got to look to the reward, and you got to practice it. And you gotta, you got to diligently stay with it because we're beset with weakness, because we're wayward, because we're ignorant. we got to learn. we got to learn the scriptures. And then we got to discipline our thinking, and we got to take our thoughts captive to Christ so that we become people who say, well, of course, the, the treasures of Egypt are nothing compared to streets of gold. The pleasures of Egypt are nothing compared to the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven and a new name which only I know and only Christ knows, this intimacy that he promises between himself and his people. Access to the tree of life in the paradise of God. We've got, we've got to know the scriptures and we've got to discipline ourselves to think in accordance with the scriptures. And we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You will, not, you will not believe on your own strength, and you will not persevere on your own strength, and you will not overcome sin on your own strength in your flesh. You will only do it by abiding in Christ and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the corresponding statement down in verse 30. Now, the author of Hebrews is much more concise here, but I'm going to suggest that he, that he has the whole situation in mind. So, verse 30 says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, just think about that, that circumstance. And, you, you know, there, there are a number of things going on there. Uh, for one thing, they're, they're only going to walk around that city for seven days if they believe. This is what God said to do. This is what Joshua tells us is going to work. Doesn't make sense to us, but we're going to obey because we believe. And then you remember what happened. The walls of Jericho fall, and Achan goes in and takes forbidden things. Achan made the opposite calculation that Moses made. Achan thought to himself, this, these gold bars... And, and this cloak from Shinar is too valuable to be thrown onto the flames. And you know what happened to him. They stoned him with stones and burned him with fire. I think Moses means to, ev I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews means to evoke all that 
in comparison with the calculation that Moses made. So where do you seek satisfaction? Which pleasures do you want? We want our allegiance to be with the Lord, and we want the pleasures that are at His right hand. In your presence is fullness of joy. And, and there, there are parts of us that just don't believe. We just don't believe that fullness of holiness is fullness of joy. And that's what we need to believe. That's what we need to become convinced of. And, and we need our, our wayward thinking straightened out so that we understand, actually, holiness is fullness of joy. Holiness is, It's not fullness of sin that's fullness of joy. That's what we think. It's actually fullness of holiness that's fullness of joy. Look with me next at verses 27 and 29. And I think here we get the, the broader story. What story of the world do you believe? Do you believe the story that the world is telling or the story that God is telling? Look at, look at verse 27. By faith, this is Moses still, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, if you think through what the author is talking about here, he, he's clearly describing what Moses was thinking and, and what was occupying his mind after he had struck down the Egyptian. And, and Pharaoh hears of it, and Pharaoh's trying to kill him. And, and I think the way the author is, is looking at this is, the author is suggesting Moses believed the Bible's story, and Moses understood his place in the unfolding narrative of salvation that we now have embedded in Genesis and Exodus. And so Moses, because he believes the Bible story, he defends his brother, Israelite, against an Egyptian. Now, Pharaoh has, has he clearly and obviously has ability to hunt Moses down in the wilderness. I think that's why the author of Hebrews says there in verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. So, Moses leaves, but it's not like the, the king can't hunt him down. I think the author is saying, even as Moses left, and even as Moses thought about, they might come for me out here in Midian. I, I think he's saying, Moses wasn't afraid. Why would he not be afraid? Well, if God says to Moses, I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to deliver my people through you, through, under your leadership, well, there's nothing the king of Egypt can do to stop that. The king of Egypt might come for him, and God's not going to, it's going to be like David and Saul. The book of Samuel tells us that Saul sought David every day, and the Lord did not give him into his hand. And I think Moses is believing that kind of thing is going to be operative for him. And then he goes on to say, the author does, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, which is to say, it's like he saw God. He He's believing the Lord, and he's cultivating the presence of God. He's abiding in the knowledge of God. So Moses avoided the king, but he didn't fear the king. He didn't flee the king because he was afraid. He fled the king because he understood his part in the story. And I think that this, this teaches us to be shrewd. We, we should look at the wicked governments of the world some of whom are currently persecuting Christians. 
some of whom, some of whom are currently saying, you can't come here and preach the gospel, and, and you certainly can't go about planting churches. You've got to do what we say, and you can only believe what we allow you to believe. And we should, in response, say, well, I'm going to be like Moses, and I'm going to avoid you, but I'm not going to fear you. I'm going to believe that God is going to accomplish his purposes. I'm going to believe that the gospel is going to bear the fruit that God intends the gospel to bear. And I'm going to believe that the Lord is going to have me alive for as long as he intends for me to be alive. And then I'll die. That's how we should respond, just like Moses does. Look at the corresponding statement, I think, in verse 29, where the author writes, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Now let's just stop for a moment and think about these people. Can you imagine being a pre-modern, ancient person living in Egypt? You don't have the internet. You don't even have the Bible, right? They, you don't have any, I mean, the only source of news they probably had was word of mouth, what people told them. And, and you walk out there and you come to the shore of the Red Sea and you see these walls of water rise up. And then you hear Moses say, that's where we're going, right through there. Now, start walking. How would you respond? I mean, I think we'd be tempted to say, I'm supposed to go through there? That doesn't look safe. But you got nowhere else to go. So it's the people that went through, they had to, had to have come to the place where they thought to themselves, it is safer for me to do what Moses says than for me to stand here and die at the hand of the Egyptians. And so I'm going to believe that that water is going to stay where it is. I got no reason for thinking it will, but I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe that God's going to keep the waters parted. Verse 29. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. They, they had assurance of things hoped for, that they would get through to the other side. And they had conviction of things not seen. They couldn't see that that water was going to stay where it was. And then it continues in verse 29. But the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And again, you've got a people believing the story of the Bible. They're believing what Moses is telling them. God made this promise to Abraham, your father. And because he made this promise to Abraham, your father, he is bringing you out of Egypt. And it's not just Abraham, your father. It goes all the way back to the very first man, Adam. And, and it's God who owns this world. And it's God who made, made this place. And God is going to overcome, and he's doing it in part through us. So go through the, through the walls of water. And they believe, and they go. So, point of application in response to this, we must be the people who know the Bible story and whose identity is shaped by the Bible story. We, we've got to be the people for whom the Bible matters more than the story that the world is telling. The world is telling a different story that is not the story we read in the scriptures. Whether it's their mythology of evolution and the Big Bang or some other pagan religion, we believe the Bible story, not the world's story. Finally, I think the central statement of this section of scripture is verse 28, where we read, By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. 
and, and you can think about this situation as well. They, they, by this point, the tenth, they've gone through the three cycles of three. If you look at the, the ten plagues, there are these, the first nine, there are like these three cycles of, of three. And by this point, I think the Israelites are like, okay, whatever Moses says, that's what we're doing. Because it's been proven true nine times now. And so they don't have a rationale necessarily for why they need to kill this animal and put its blood on their doorpost and lintel, but they believe this is what God said. There is a God. He's coming to destroy the firstborn of anybody that doesn't do this. The only safe place to be is under the blood of the lamb. They believe it, and so they do it. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So, how does this apply today? Well, we need to believe that there's a destroyer. And we need to believe that the blood saves. Because what happened there with the lamb's blood on the lintel is fulfilled when Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, dies on the cross. And the book of Revelation speaks of how the redeemed are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we have, to, we have to believe there's a destroyer. If you're here today and you don't believe that God judges people, you're not a Christian. God judges people. If you're here today and you don't believe that you needed Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, you are not a Christian. We want you to be a Christian. We want you to understand God's going to judge. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that anybody that turns from their sin and trusts in Christ... It's like you're an ancient Israelite who put the lamb's blood on the doorpost and on the lintel and the destroyer won't touch you. That's what we believe and we want you to join us in believing that. We want you to be saved by the blood of the lamb. This is what Christians have always believed. This is what our, our brother Melito of Sardis sometime between probably 160 and 170 A.D., long ago, said about these events. He says of the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection and how it fulfills the Passover, he says, by the Spirit, which could not die, he killed death, the killer of men. For himself led as a lamb, he's alluding to Isaiah 53, you know, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he himself led as a lamb and slain as a sheep. He ransomed us from the world's service as from the land of Egypt. So we don't serve sin and we don't serve the world. It's like we've been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, only better and fuller and bigger. And freed us from the devil's slavery as from the hand of Pharaoh. And he marked out our souls with his own spirit and the members of our body with his own blood. That's who we are. We're the redeemed. It is he that clothed death with shame and stood the devil in grief as Moses did Pharaoh. It is he that struck down crime and made injustice childless as Moses did Egypt. It is he that delivered us from slavery to liberty, from darkness to light, from death to life, from tyranny to eternal royalty. And made us a new priesthood and an eternal people personal 
to him. And then this author is going to go into this, this riff that's much like the song that we sang earlier in the service. He says he is the Pascha of our salvation, Pascha being a reference to the Passover lamb. It is he who in many endured many things. It is he that was in Abel murdered and in Isaac bound and in Jacob exiled and in Joseph sold and in Moses exposed and in the lamb slain and in David persecuted and in the prophets dishonored. It is he that was enfleshed in a virgin that was hanged on a tree, that was buried in the earth, that was raised from the dead, that was taken up to the heights of heaven. He is the lamb being slain. He is the lamb that is speechless. He is the one born from Mary, the lovely ewe lamb. He is the one taken from the flock and dragged to slaughter. This is our Lord Jesus, the one in whom we believe, the one to whom we swear allegiance. We, uh, this is a great phrase in J.I. Packer's Knowing God. He says, we need the Bible and the knowledge of God to capture our imagination and lay claim to our allegiance. The Lord Jesus is the one who promises us satisfaction. The Lord Jesus is the one who fills out the contours of the story of our lives. The Lord Jesus is the one whose deliverance we need. The world has no deliverance. Whose deliverance do you seek? You want deliverance from the world? None there. No forgiveness, no reconciliation, no hope, no resurrection. The Lord Jesus gives us the deliverance that we need. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would so work through your word, that we would join the ranks of these who were commended through their faith. And though they did not receive what was promised, because you have provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Lord, we pray that you would be perfecting us by your spirit, by your word, conforming us to the image of Christ. Make us those like him who first suffer and then enter into glory. We ask it in his name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.